What a great song. That's a great song. Thank the Lord. Let's take our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. Thank you for being in church. It's good to see you all. I know that um, Sunday mornings, you never know what's going to happen on a Sunday morning. You never know what's going to happen when you show up to church, but, you know, life can be very distracting. Have you noticed that? Just a lot of distractions, whether it's things of the world or just things in our own life. You might have fought with your wife on the way to church this morning. Your kids may have gone crazy in the car. You just may have some weights and some burdens that you're carrying, but it's, it's good to just pause that for a little while this morning and allow the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts. It's good to be in church, isn't it? It's good to be able to fellowship together and uh, open the Scriptures. Well, we've read Isaiah chapter 53 this morning, and uh, what a great chapter. This, uh, this chapter of the Word of God is really written from the standpoint of the suffering Savior to come. You know, we have the privilege now of looking back a couple of thousand years, and we have the scriptures, and we, we understand the context, but Isaiah didn't understand the context. Uh, Isaiah is writing about something that's to come, and really, he, he writes this chapter that leaves us with some unanswered questions. If we didn't have the rest of the Bible, we'd have some, some questions that had no answer, and there's, uh, there's a particular question that he asks here. Uh, who shall declare his generation? He starts off by saying, who's believed our report? There's something that I have to say. There's something that God has given to me to say. And, and I'm going to say this thing to you. And I'm going to preach this message to you. But, but who's going to believe this message that I'm going to, to speak, Isaiah says. He neither saw the life of the promised Messiah. He never heard the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he did not know what was going to be fulfilled. He just knew what God told him to say. But now we have the privilege of looking back at the Word of God, and we see the life, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see now that the resurrection of Christ, it changed everything, didn't it? It wasn't just the fact that Christ died. I'm glad that when you go to Bible-believing churches, you might see a cross somewhere, and it's always an empty cross. It's important that it's an empty cross. By the way, it's an empty tomb as well. We understand that the resurrection of Christ, it changed everything, and, and despair now was replaced uh, with hope, and, and uncertainty now found its, its certainty, and it was all found in the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and everything was changed because Jesus Christ was raised, and so then we move into the life of the apostles. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus went about his earthly ministry and he chose 12 and then there were 11, if you know the story, and then there were others that were added. And we see through the lives of these great men that there was a newfound hope and there was a newfound purpose. And, and I think that, uh, that Peter and John's statement really sums it up where they said after the resurrection of Christ, they said to those religious leaders who had rejected him, they said, uh, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Uh, we have lived now with him and walked with him these three or so years. And now he's uh, been crucified and now he's been resurrected and ascended up at the right hand of the Father. But we have a job. We, we can't but speak what we have seen and heard. And so they did. They evangelized their country. If you would be familiar with what we call the Great Commission, you would see that the Lord Jesus himself spake to those 11 men that were gathered with him that day before he ascended. And he basically said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's exactly what they did. They evangelized their country, and then they spread out beyond Israel and into the, the distant lands. And then, of course, Paul came along, who said of himself that he was one born out of due season. And, 
And what did Paul do? Well, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He preached Christ to the nations. But brethren, there's many years that have passed. Peter and James and John and those 11 men lie in their graves today. Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Epaphroditus and the many others found in our New Testament, they also lie in their graves today. And as it was with David, the Bible says that they served their own generation by the will of God and then they fell on sleep. Time has passed. But the question that Isaiah asked in this chapter, it still rings true today. And the question was, who shall declare his generation? I want you to notice in this chapter with me, Isaiah speaking of the coming suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. This is the, the young Messiah, if you will. Jesus as a boy growing up in his humanity, in this earthly body that he took upon him. And as a root out of a dry ground, he, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Brethren, here's what God's saying. When Jesus grew up in Israel, he was just an ordinary boy who turned into an ordinary man. Uh, there was nothing unusual or extraordinary about the man himself. He had no, no beauty that we should desire him. It wasn't that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. It wasn't that he was an Absalom that was, that was more fair in beauty than anybody else in Israel in his day. No, the Lord Jesus Christ was just an average man. But notice in verse 3, he is, present tense, he is despised and rejected of men. And isn't that true today? Oh, there's many who name the name of Jesus, and yet when it comes down to the Jesus of the Bible, he is still despised and rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I'm sure glad that he's a burden bearer, though. It says that he's a man of sorrows, not just the sorrows of his earthly life, which led to the death of Christ, but... It's the sorrows of humanity that he willingly takes upon himself. It says here that we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Notice what happens in verse 4. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. You understand there were those who looked at the suffering Messiah as Jesus hung upon the cross. And they said, ah, oh, this is what it is. It's come back to you now. There was obviously something secret in your life that nobody saw, but now you're, you're stricken of God and afflicted. You've gotten what's justly coming to you. That was the approach that men had toward the Messiah, but we understood that, that he bore our sin on the cross that day. Verse 5, Isaiah continues, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. I want you to notice the condition of us as people, though. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and yet he was oppressed. Uh, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What a great uh, understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He said, he said that for this cause he came into the world. When Peter drew his sword out that night in the garden and cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, the, the Lord Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Don't you think that if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels from my father. They could deliver me from this. But for this cause, I came into the world. That's what Jesus was saying. And so he opened not his mouth. Pilate marveled that Jesus didn't try to defend himself. 
He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And verse 8, who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. This is all the introduction to the message, by the way, but what a great introduction. Verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. I want us to notice some things as we move on from this into verse number 10 and get to the last few verses of this chapter. I want you to consider some things about our Savior who suffered on the cross the day that he did. Would you notice with me in verse number 10 it says this, that it, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I want you to understand the reason for which Jesus Christ died. His soul was made an offering for sin. You know, the sin of man is a great sin. The sin of man comes at a great cost. I don't mean great from the standpoint of fantastic. I mean, I mean great from the standpoint of awful. It was a great sin that came at a great cost. And it says that, that he made his soul an offering for sin. Later in this chapter, Isaiah is speaking to the people of his day, and he says this. He says, your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for the truth. They trust in vanity, speaking of idolatry. They, they trust in vanity. They speak lies. They conceive mischief, and they bring forth iniquity. Ah, what a travesty of human nature that is. I'm saying that the sin of mankind is a great sin. And when it says that he made his soul an offering for sin, it came at a great cost, our sin did. It came at a great cost. Not only did the Lord Jesus Christ suffer, but it's a great cost to humanity. Brethren, we understand what happens to the lost. The cost of sin for humanity is that they would spend an eternity in the lake of fire. That was not the intent of God. It was not the intent of God that man would sin. It was not the intent of God that, that there would be punishment for mankind. But it does not change the fact and the reality of man's sin. If a man dies without Christ, he goes to hell. Ultimately, hell will be cast into the lake of fire in man's eternal destiny. Lost without the Lord Jesus Christ is to spend an eternity suffering in that place. I dare say that's a great cost. But it came at a great cost to the Lord Jesus Christ. David was prophesying of this very thing in the book of Psalm in chapter 16. These are really the, the thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ coming out in prophecy. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So if you're looking here, it says that it, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's, he's put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, it says that he shall see his seed. In other words, this, that there would be those that would be born again by the incorruptible seed of the word of God. And this was something that Jesus knew before he went to the cross. He knew what was going to come. Thou shalt see his seed. It was something in the future. It was those that would be saved because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter talked about this in 1 Peter in chapter 1, saying that we were born again, not of corruptible seed, he says, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. 
If you were saved here on this Sunday morning, at some stage in your life, uh, you were confronted with the truth of the Word of God, the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. It took root in your heart and you believed the, the truth of the gospel. You understood your need for Christ. You understood you were a sinner condemned and unworthy of judgment. And if you put your faith in Christ, you were born again. Then Nicodemus marveled at that. How is it that a man could be born again the second time? Could he go up into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, no, no. How is it that you could be a master, a ruler, a teacher of these truths in Israel and you don't even understand this? And Jesus began to say, the, the words that I'm speaking to you, they're, they're spirit and they're life. You must be born again. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And so he was. And many others clear up until today. You know what that is? That's the seed that was prophesied here. He shall see his seed, those who would be born again by the word of God. But notice this, he shall see his seed. You understand what Jesus said in John chapter number 12? He says, verily, verily, that means truly. Uh, let me tell you the truth. Jesus says this. He says, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And so it was of his own life. He died to bring forth much fruit unto himself, the seed that should come. Isaiah continues on in this verse, and he says this, he shall prolong his days. He shall prolong his days. He is responsible for prolonging his own days. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy of his own power to raise himself from the dead. Again, Jesus said this in John 10. He said, therefore, doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. Brethren, listen, you understand that it wasn't the Romans who crucified him and Jesus died. All the Romans crucified him, but he gave his own life. He said this, I, I lay it down that I might take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. When, when Isaiah is speaking here from the, the standpoint of the coming Savior that he shall prolong his days, he's talking about the fact, that, oh, yes, I'll die. Uh, that which was prophesied of me being the suffering Savior, I will die, but I will raise myself. I have the power to raise myself from the dead. I'll prolong my days. By the way, isn't that a great comfort to you and I? Is if you're saved here on this Sunday morning, then since Jesus raised himself from the dead, that means he's got the power to raise you from the dead. At the end of that verse, he says that the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This, this work of redemption uh, for which he came to the earth, it's going to prosper. It was the pleasure of the Lord. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. In other words, God from the, the foundation of the world understood what was coming in this world. He understood the, the deception of Eve and the serpent. He understood the willful sin and disobedience of Adam. He understood that death would pass upon all men. He understood that generation after generation of human existence would be filled with tragedy and suffering and sin. And so he devised the means whereby his banished should come. Those that were in sin could be reconciled to God. It, Please the Lord. If you just sit back and think about that as a Christian, it's really hard to understand why God would do that. You know, if we look honestly at ourselves as believers, we have nothing to recommend us to God, right? Hey, just think back before you got saved. If you got saved a little bit later in your life, the kind of life you lived before Jesus Christ saved, do you think about that? There was nothing good in that to recommend you to God. 
There was nothing good in you that God would say, well, I see great value in that thing, so I'm going to redeem that, but I'm not going to redeem this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the reality of us. That's the reality of who we are. But Jesus said that his pleasure to save humanity would prosper in his hand. It's called victory, by the way. It speaks of victory. He said, I'm going to accomplish what I intended to accomplish in this world. And so here we are, a living testimony of the truth of that. If you're saved here today, you and I are a living testimony of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish what he in fact said he would accomplish. The pleasure of the Lord continues to prosper in his hand if you're saved today. And people will still continue to get saved. We thank the Lord for the power of the gospel. That men and women still trust the Lord Jesus Christ. The pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Would you look in your Bible with me? In verse 11 it says, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I want you to see that he will justify many, it says. Uh, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant uh, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You know, it wasn't just enough that payment had been made upon the cross. Here's what I mean by that. The payment had to be accepted. You know, in verse number 10, Isaiah said that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Verse 11 says that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. The father would look upon that and be satisfied. You understand, that's what John meant when John said this. I hear in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means an accepted payment. And you see, that's what it is. Redemption is that the payment has been made. But propitiation is that the payment has been accepted by the Father. It wasn't just enough that he died. That payment had to be accepted, and indeed it was. Indeed it was. When Jesus said this, it is finished. The Father accepted the payment. Not that there was ever any doubt that it was going to be accepted. But that's the doctrine of propitiation in your Bible. That God accepted the payment that Jesus Christ made upon the cross of Calvary. And what did that payment for sin accomplish? Again, we go back to what John said. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, aren't you glad it's a whosoever gospel, believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting. The whole world has received it. Oh, the payment has been made. Uh, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, the premise of the whole book is really, there's one sacrifice forever. It was Jesus Christ. There's not a perpetual sacrifice. There's no thing as an ongoing bloody sacrifice again and again and again, day by day and week by week. No, brethren. The truth of Scripture is very clear that there was one sacrifice and it was forever. Jesus Christ, the accepted payment for the world. The price was paid. You see, and now Job's question can finally be answered. Job asked the question, well, how can man be just with God? And throughout all the generations since Job's day, there was never really an answer to that. How can man be just with God? But Paul said it right when he said this in Romans in chapter 3. Speaking of him declaring Christ, he says, To declare, I say, uh, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Oh, now we understand. Now we understand then that that a man can be just with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so down through the ages, God has reached out to humanity, to those who call upon him by faith. God has justified those who receive the gift of faith, the gift that he offers. But Jesus made a statement in John 10. And really, this is the crux of the message as we think about it together. He made a statement this way before he went to the cross. He said, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. You remember reading that? Now, there were those who didn't understand that. As a matter of fact, I believe it was many years even after the the, uh, resurrection of Christ before it finally really began to sink in to his followers uh, what he meant by this. Other sheep, he said. I have, which are not of this fold. Now, Isaiah is saying here in this passage, he says that his soul was an offering for sin. So the, the payment had been made. Uh, then Isaiah said, now, his, his servant, his righteous servant, speaking of Jesus Christ, he was going to justify many. And then Jesus said, now, there's other sheep that I have, and they're not of this fold. Uh, who did Jesus uh, come to minister to? Well, primarily it was to his people. He came unto his own. And his own received him not. And so Jesus, looking at his own, says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, which are not of Israel. And so he begins to say now to his disciples, uh, there, there, is, there are all nations out there that need to hear the gospel. And the task isn't finished yet. And it brings us back in our passage to the, the question that Isaiah asked. If you look back here in chapter 53 and verse number 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment and He asked the question, and who shall declare his generation? And brethren, this is the heart of the missionary endeavor. Who shall declare his generation? And really it comes in two parts, this question. First, to the Christian who in any place would dare to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and speak for him. Who will declare his generation? I want to ask you that question this morning. If you're saved here this Sunday morning, are you among those who would be an answer to the question? Would you dare and stand to speak for Christ in the place that you live, the place that you work, the place that you go to school? Would you dare and speak for him? I dare say you and I won't speak for Christ if we're ashamed to be around him, if we're ashamed to be associated with him. But Paul made it very clear, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There was no, there's no difference. There's no distinction. It is the power of God. And we ought not to be ashamed of the fact that we have been born again. We ought not to be ashamed of our Savior. Brethren, it's good for us sometimes to take an objective step back and look at our life and just remember what we were called out of. Hey, just remember what we were delivered from. Maybe it's a good idea to just pause a minute and say, I'm going to remember the hole that God dug me out of when he saved me. Now, we don't go back and glory in the old life, but sometimes it's good to just visit that a minute and say, okay, I remember what he saved me out of, and I have been brought from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. I have been translated into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ought not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. Who shall declare his generation? Will you? Will I? I'm ashamed to say there's been many times in my life when I I had an opportunity to speak for Christ and didn't. I had an opportunity to open my mouth and just share something about the Lord. I had an opportunity to hand somebody a gospel leaflet and I was ashamed to do it. 
It wasn't long ago, maybe three months ago, I was, I was driving up in the northern part of New South Wales and just kind of exploring some towns and just evangelizing as I went through these towns. And as the days were going by, I was in one particular place <clears throat> and walked into a park area and a lot of people out and about and just doing what you do on a, on a beautiful day. And there was a whole bunch of people just kind of sitting around in the park, but it was a kind of park where no matter where you were sitting, you could see everybody else. And I began to walk through this park and I had gospel literature in my hand and I was trying to tell people about the Lord and I remember the feeling that hit me. The, the feeling of what are people going to think when they see me walking up to a bench to talk to this guy and there's 53 other people staring at me across the way. What are they going to think about me when I go over here to this guy? What about this lady who's walking her dog and I'm going to approach her with a gospel leaflet and it's going to be evident to everybody out there that's watching what I'm doing you understand? I'm just being honest with you. I, I, was, I was fighting the shame. But you understand, I, I've been called as a Christian the way you've been called as a Christian to declare his generation. I've been told not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What do we have to be ashamed of? What's the answer? Well, nothing. We've got nothing to be ashamed of. We've got everything to rejoice in. I want to challenge you today. As you approach this new week amongst the lost people that you work around and you go to school around, to look for opportunities, to pray for opportunities, to use opportunities to share the gospel with those that are lost. Could we consider the people around us and understand that they're lost and on their way to hell? And good intentions never saved anybody. And a family heritage and pedigree, it never saved anybody. And church attendance never saved anybody. Amen. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to save. And they're not going to know unless somebody tells them. Romans in chapter 10. How shall they hear without a preacher? And from the standpoint of just what we just call the average Christian, that's all of us. That's our responsibility to declare his generation. You know, when, when people preach or teach messages like this from the scriptures, I believe the Holy Spirit just reminds each one of us of that person that we know we need to witness to. There's somebody I believe that you know that you need to witness to. It could be your next door neighbor, somebody in your family, somebody you go to school with, somebody you ride the bus with every day. There's somebody that needs to hear the generation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second part of this question is something I want to draw to your attention as well. Because Isaiah asked in verse number eight that he said that Jesus was taken from prison and from judgment. And he said, who's going to declare his generation? Really, this is the missionary question. This is the question for the man. The man who would perhaps yield himself to the call of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the plan of God has always been this, that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God could have written, written it in the stars. But guys, we can go out in the dark place and we can search the night sky. You're not going to find the gospel there. Oh, I understand that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. I understand that it reveals there is a God, but it doesn't tell you who he is. And God could have chosen all the angels of heaven to fly through the night sky proclaiming the gospel to the, the furthest corners of the earth, but he never did that. No, it was given to us. The commission to reach the world was given to us. And it wasn't a commission to be a social gospel. 
Uh, there's more to missions than digging wells and building houses. All of those things are helpful and useful, but they're not the primary objective. What is the primary objective of missions? To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. And it takes men to do that. The plan of God hasn't changed. The work of God hasn't changed. The need of the world hasn't changed. What's changed? Well, it's the people of God that have changed. I was on the phone with a uh, missionary that you support. It's been several months ago now, and he's an older man, and <clears throat> he and his wife are not in the best of health. We were having a talk and just, just allowing him to just talk. He just needed to talk for a while, and as a part of his conversation, he said, Tom, he said, where are the men in Australia? He said, where are they? We're old. We're looking for an exit. We're trying to turn this over to somebody. We're, we're of bad health. I, I can barely get around. A lot of his uh, time is spent just trying to get out of bed in the morning. He's not in a very easy country to serve from, you know, as an older man. Where are the men, he said. Hey, it's not that God's not calling men. But where are the men? As we think about who shall declare his generation, who among us would raise their hand and say, hey, I, I will give up my ambitions and I will abandon my life to preach the gospel to the world. It was Paul who said it this way as he looked at his own life. Hear what the apostle Paul said. He said, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. I am debtor, Paul said. I owe a debt. Hey, men, can I speak to you this morning? Perhaps God is calling you, but whether he is or he is not, you and I need to realize if you're saved this morning, we are debtors to the lost. We owe them something to preach the gospel to them. They're not going to hear it by osmosis. They're not going to see it in the stars. They're not going to get it because they're just clicking through, uh, through YouTube. They're not going to know. How are they going to hear unless somebody goes and preaches to them? And when God defined the great need of the harvest, here's what he said. He didn't talk about money. He didn't say, well, it's going to take money to reach the world. We understand it takes money to support missions. He said this in Luke in chapter 10. He said, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Our job is to yield our life, to abandon our life to Christ. That's what he expects of us. And then he said, I want you to pray that God would send laborers into his harvest. I think one of the reasons we we're afraid to do that is because, you know, if you're really praying about something, God begins to burden your heart for it. Have you noticed that? I think that's why the Lord talked about people that are our enemies. And he said, if there's somebody who's made themselves your enemy, there's three things I want you to do. He said, love them, pray for them, and do, do good to them. And if you've ever had somebody who's made themselves an enemy to you and you spent time praying for them, I mean really praying. Not like the imprecatory prayers of Psalms, you know, God break out their teeth, but not those, but, but real prayers. You know what happens is your heart begins to change. And that person that you sort of despise and you had a bad attitude about, suddenly God begins to change your heart because you're praying about it. Don't you think Jesus understood that when he told us to pray for our enemies? 
Well, what about when God says, I want you to pray for the world, that God would send laborers into the harvest field? You know, if you started praying for someplace like Bahrain or someplace like Indonesia or someplace like some, you know, South Africa, or you just pick a country in this world, you start praying about a country like that and you're passionate and you're persistent and you're, you're begging God for this place. Don't you think that at some point the Holy Spirit's going to knock on your heart's door and say, hey, I want you to go there. And I just wonder sometimes if men are too afraid because they know if they actually followed this and they were praying the way God told them to pray, God might just say, yeah, you're praying for yourself. It's time for you to go. But one way or the other, the question of Scripture remains this morning. Who shall declare his generation? And church family, this morning, it, it's our job. We didn't leave in, live in the previous generation. We're not responsible for the, the Aussies that lived when this church was founded 30 some odd years ago. Now we're responsible for the generation that God has placed us here. There's a great missionary whose name was Robert Moffat. He said, oh, that I had a thousand lives and a thousand bodies. All of them should be devoted to no other employment but to preach Christ to these degraded, despised, yet beloved mortals. Another missionary years ago, Count Zinzendorf, said this. He said, I have but one passion. It is he, it is he alone. The world is the field and the field is the world and henceforth that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls to Christ. Isaiah asked the question, who shall declare his generation? May we all raise our hand and say, God, I'm willing to obey that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this passage, this this great understanding of the, the coming suffering Savior. But Lord, we have the advantage of looking at Isaiah 53 through the lens of the life of Christ. And now we see why you came to suffer and now we see who Jesus was and what he did and now we understand that his soul really was an offering for sin and we, we see now that that gift is now made available to all men. But Father, you've asked the question, who's there to declare his generation? Father, it's very clear in Scripture, it's our job. We can't rest on the victories of the previous generation. We can't just enjoy the, the fruits of other people's labors. There is a world without Christ today, and it's still our responsibility to sacrifice, to give, to yield, to go, to pray. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us as Christians today would, would rise up tomorrow as we think about the week ahead and that we would consider, Lord, our responsibility in declaring his generation to the people around us, the people we interact with every day. Lord, help us to be faithful and help us to be aware of the lost. But then, Lord, I pray there might be one who you would be calling to the gospel ministry. And I pray for that man that he would be yielded, surrendered, willing to remember he's a debtor. Lord, that you would accomplish your perfect purpose. Raise up a generation of preachers in this country to go out, not just into our country, but the nations of this world, and do the thing you've given us to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.